I'm talking today with Lieutenant Christopher Cook, who is the Public Information Officer with the Arlington Police Department in Texas. In this episode, we will talk about some of the most pressing issues facing law enforcement, including defunding and the dangerous levels of violence in the riots and protests we've seen. To use his words, the horror stories he has heard from his colleagues in markets around the country. We talk about the murder of George Floyd, the experiences of our minority communities when it comes to law enforcement, and the importance of transparency from our police departments. We'll talk about use of force, how it looks, and when it's needed. Lieutenant Cook also shares stories from his 25-year career. The hard times, like losing two friends in the line of duty, the rewards of the job, and why he became a police officer. One of the reasons I'm so eager to talk to him today is that his work as PIO extends well beyond his own department. He has had prominent roles in three of the largest law enforcement and government communications groups in the world. And those are major cities chiefs, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, IACP, and the National Information Officers Association, NIOA, of which he will be president in 2021. What is significant about all of this is it means Lieutenant Cook has his finger on the pulse of the issues law enforcement agencies around the country are facing. It puts him in the unique position of helping to create best practices and policies for PIOs who play such a critical role as spokespeople for their police departments. Welcome, Lieutenant. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here and I appreciate you taking the, the time to really talk to me about kind of what's going on around the country. And, and you know, it's 2020 has been a very interesting year. Uh, I hate using the word unprecedented because everyone says that. But in my 25 years or so, I've really never experienced anything like it. And so I appreciate the opportunity. But let's just jump right in. When you say that, what do you mean? I've been in the media relations department, I guess you could say, for about a decade or so. It's allowed me to experience a lot of things, good and bad. Uh, but when you fast forward to the year 2020, you know, there's just been a steady stream of things that agencies have had to deal with, and more specifically that public information officers are really having to, to wrestle with. We turned around and in, in, in March, we had to start dealing kind of with the pandemic. And then, you know, fast forward a couple months later to May, the civil unrest that occurred after the killing of George Floyd. Everything is now being looked at and questioned and scrutinized, and rightly so. Depending on what part of the country you're in, it's more pronounced. Being from North Texas, you know, we, we still enjoy a great deal of uh, public respect. But when, you know, I talk to other PIOs on the, the West Coast and even the East Coast, there's still some, some extensive struggles that are occurring out there, and the job continues to have to be done regardless of the pandemic and regardless of calls for police reform and defunding. So part of the reason you have this network is through the organizations I mentioned in your introduction. Yeah, so I've had the fortunate opportunity to be involved in three of the largest communicator groups uh, really in the world. In 2016, I was elected to chair the IACP PIO section, and, and we were able to really move the needle, I think, in the positive direction in trying to share best practices across the profession. Because at the time, we were just out of Ferguson. There was a lot of things happening nationally that was causing the profession to kind of become under a microscope, very similar to what has transpired here in 2020. 
And tell me about major cities chiefs. The major cities chiefs association is a, a large group representing 78 of the biggest police departments across the United States and Canada. So they came to me and said, hey, we're going to form a PIO committee um, where the PIOs of these large agencies can get together, see what kind of help they may need, and then we host annual training at the conference. And then please tell me about the National Information Officers Association, of which you will be president in 2021. That's actually the largest group that actually has just PIOs in it, and it's government communicators. A lot of the incidents that have affected the profession, they have not occurred in big cities. Now, some have, and so we're able to take the best level of instruction and give it to PIOs who certainly wouldn't probably have the resources to do the training on their own. Well, let's talk about that. Department to department, what a PIO shares with the community seems to differ a great deal. So, for example, I watched a number of your interviews with media after an incident, and I found you to be very forthcoming with information. Where I see other markets, I don't see them being as immediately transparent. Is that an accurate perception? Is there a reason they can't be so immediately transparent? And do you think that leads to some of the distrust? Yeah, that's a great question. If you were to ask me five years ago, would we release video within 24 to 48 hours? I would say likely not, because the way things were managed back then is you have to coordinate with the district attorney's office and all these other you know, stakeholders. Um, and typically they would recommend, hey, we're not going to release anything that may interfere or jeopardize an investigation until it's went to the grand jury or, or until if it goes to trial, until the trial is over. But what we've seen over the past few years is the demand from the community. They're, they don't want to wait, right? I can actually relate to their frustrations because if you can't just, you know, take someone's word that, hey, this is what's happened. And so I think you've seen this urgency on the sense of public information officers like myself that have really tried to, to lead the way from the perspective of, hey, there's no reason to sit on video. There's no reason to sit on information that can be publicly released. You have to do it carefully. You have to be very methodical. You need to make sure that the facts are vetted. And I can relate that people want information almost instantaneously. But at the end of the day, the, the role of the public information officer is to be that conduit of information between the agency and the public. And so I always tell public information officers and chiefs that regardless of whether it's good, bad, ugly, looks great, have a standardized protocol that you're going to kind of try to handle each incident the same way. I think that that really builds trust, and that's what we're trying to do. It seems like it, departments, as you just said, have gone to great lengths to release video within 24 to 48 hours then part of what I've seen happen is in some markets, they don't comment on the video. So now you've got this video out there with no perspective. And the video may look, at, may look to citizens like the police have done something wrong or they've shot an unarmed person, but some departments will not let their PIOs comment. And so there is a vacuum. And I'll take it one step further. Lately, what we've seen is officers getting fired on the release of a video. No investigation. 
You may not have all the answers, but when you're releasing a video that demonstrates or shows some type of force used, there's nothing wrong with providing perspective. And anytime force is used, it's one of the most scrutinized actions that a police officer can take, especially with deadly force. And there's going to be thorough reviews. Matter of fact, we're going to run a concurrent criminal and administrative investigation. And then you're going to have independent third-party reviews, like a, a grand jury. That's where the justification, yes or no, will come from. As a police agency, your role is to project the basic fact set, the sequencing of what happened. If you just dump video without any kind of uh, fact set to accompany the video, then you allow people to make their own emotional decisions on what they're viewing, and you allow other folks in the community to control the narrative. And so we've got to kind of guard against that. But just speaking from a, a global perspective, when you see these, these force encounters unfold on national television, I think that it's okay to acknowledge that things move very fast. The real foundation for many of these encounters starts with a, a lack of compliance. Now, that's mm -hmm. not to place blame on, on anyone involved in an encounter. But the goal of a police, legitimate police activity, is compliance. And so when you see somebody that's not being compliant and that gets, you know, ratcheted up very quickly, um, you, you know, emotions start to go up, adrenaline starts to kick in, not only with, for the officers that are in, involved directly in the situation, but also on a suspect or suspects, you can see how things can get moving really quickly. And understand that law enforcement as a profession, it's a difficult job. Officers, by and large, when you ask someone, why did you become a police officer? Almost every officer that we've ever hired said, because I want to make a positive difference in my community. Okay, and so if we believe that to be the case, that they want to do a good job, that they want to protect communities from people that would do harm, then it's okay to also believe the fact that, guess what? Most officers that come to work each and every day, they don't want to be in involved in a deadly force encounter. But unfortunately, in our job, there are times where a suspect will make certain decisions. And, and there's been a lot of academic research as to why people run from police or why people feel so much despair that the only thing that they can think of on getting out of trouble is to produce a weapon uh, and, and pointing it at an officer or discharging it at an officer. And unfortunately, there will be times where deadly force encounters are going to occur and they're going to play out on national television. And what I tell my family when that's occurring, someone has either lost their life or has been critically injured. From a human decency standpoint, the loss of life or serious injury should bother every uh, person. We have to acknowledge as a policing profession there are different perspectives that people have with police depending on how they were brought up, how they were raised, their environment. I have met with community members in the last four or five years that have told me, I mean, I'm talking about African-American and Hispanic families that are actually fearful when they get stopped. And what should they do? What should they tell their kids? And again, it breaks my heart because... I love my profession. I love being a police officer. That's all I ever wanted to do from when I was a little kid. I played cops when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. And so I would never do anything to harm my badge, to
to harm my profession, to harm another innocent person, right? But just me telling families that, hey, I would never do that, it's not reassuring to them because unfortunately we have had incidents that the profession has not managed well, that where the profession has been wrong. George Floyd should not be dead today. There's not a police officer across the country that you're going to find that will support the things that we saw on that video. A man could not breathe and, and the officer could not get off his neck. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense to us because, you know, as police officers, when we see that, we're just as upset and angry about how in the world can this happen? How can an officer do that? And so we have to continue to work harder. We have to project that that is not the norm, that the vast majority of police officers who put on their duty belt and their uniform each and every day, they want to make a positive difference. Let's face it too, the vast majority of contacts that we have as a profession, we're either dealing with somebody because maybe they were speeding or they, their, their headlights were broken, so we're in kind of an enforcement situation, or they've called us because they've been victimized. So if that's the two times that we have interactions with the public, our job is that much more challenging to make sure that we're really penetrating with our messaging that, hey, we're here to serve you. The old adage of protect and serve. You mentioned traffic stops and sadly what a disparate experience that is for some members of our society. Like you, it saddens me as well. One of the things I learned early on 10 years ago in interviewing officers is that traffic stops are also one of the most dangerous things a police officer can do. I would not have known that. Traffic stops are an unknown, high-risk kind of environment because you don't know who you're stopping. You don't know if it's just, and I hate the word routine, but a routine traffic stop. But at the end of the day, to your point, it is a high-risk environment, so that's always in the back of an officer's mind. And so it's a balancing act. There are other times, though, where an officer's sense of security is heightened. Uh, maybe the violator took a long time to pull over or there's a lot of uh, movement going on in the car. You know, is, is, is the violator trying to hide something and that the officer's safety may be in question? And so, uh, again, we train our officers to de-escalate, even on traffic stops, to de-escalate situations, to calm folks down. Same thing can be said about domestic disturbances. They're very dangerous calls. And I will even go one step further. In the last few months, unfortunately, we've seen instances of ambushes of officers that are just simply sitting in their vehicles. When they see these instances unfold, like we saw in Los Angeles with the, the two sheriff's deputies, uh, that can really question in an officer's mind the level of support that's out there, and we have to guard against that. We have to guard against cynicism and make sure that as an agency that we are doing the things that we need to do to ensure high level of employee wellness. Part of the challenge, I think, for officers in certain markets where it does not feel like there is any community support, it, there are constant protests that really turn into riots Officers' lives are at risk. They are being bodily harmed. And on top of that, the hatred that is being spewed at them, I don't know how they get through it, are going to get through it. 
there is some definite challenges in certain parts of the country, and we're very in tune to that. Um, we, again, we have monthly conference calls with a lot of these PIOs that, that represent some of these agencies like Portland and Seattle and NYPD and LAPD. And, you know, to, to hear some of the, I'll just call them horror stories. I mean, they're horrific acts of violence that are directed at a police officer simply because they're wearing the uniform throwing fireworks at officers during protest, shining lasers in their eyes, that can, that can be very difficult for a police officer who they raise their right hand, they swore to an oath to protect and serve, they want to make a positive difference, and it can really feel like the weight of the world is on their shoulders and that no one's really supporting them. What I would say to that is that even when I see stuff like this occur, and I look at the social media platforms that these agencies are publishing some of these horrific crimes and showcasing kind of what they're up against, I still see a large segment of community comments of support coming in. And so some people refer to it as the silent majority. And certainly I've heard police officers say we need the silent majority to, to stand up and be more vocal. Here's what I would say to all of that. I don't refer to them as silent majority or pro-police. I refer to them as just everyday American citizens who believe in the rule of law. And we cannot, as police officers, become uh, cynical to the fact that when people go out and exercise their First Amendment right, that they're automatically against uh, law enforcement. Keep in mind, the majority of the protests that we've seen, I, I still believe that a lot of them are law-abiding, good citizens who unfortunately get sometimes labeled with some bad actors in the crowd. And, and certainly there have been some protests that have been completely derailed, especially some of the late-night stuff or overnight hours in Portland. You, you've seen where they're at that point of the night, there's just nothing good that can come of it, and it, is, it seems like it's an organized attack against not only law enforcement but really the rule of law. There are police officers, though, that each and every day they're dealing with these, these protests, and it can be taxing. It can be challenging. Just like we denounce bad policing, uh, which occurred in Minneapolis, we also have to stand in solidarity and denounce acts of violence. There is no room to allow individuals that are going to hijack a lawful assembly or a lawful protest. There's no room in our society for those to be hijacked with criminal violence directed at governmental institutions or police officers. But I'm optimistic that people will realize that, hey, you know, we need policing. We need law enforcement in our communities. Well, and I do agree with you that there is support for law enforcement. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I did want to touch on something, and that is the, the calls for reform, but then you also have calls for defunding. And if you start cutting budgets and then you start losing officers and then you also probably start cutting training, these calls for defunding seem to be a reactive, punitive action that will not lead to the results they are hoping for. Yeah, you know, I think that when you see the police reform conversation taking shape, each community will determine the level of policing, the type of policing, the amount of investments that they want to make. 
Unfortunately, it seems as if we've had some across the country that have tried to tie defunding to somehow punish or uh, you've heard the term, you know, reimagine policing to really kind of take financial resources away from legitimate law enforcement activities in the hopes, they claim, that we'll build a stronger and better police department. But in reality, patrol is the backbone of any agency. And so the more financial resources that you remove or take off the table, the the less community investment style programs that you're likely going to receive. Because why? There's still going to be a call for service factor that you're going to have to respond to. And certainly, I think law enforcement is open to conversations on the types of calls that we're responding to, placing accountability, especially on the mental health front with other social service organizations and, and healthcare providers. You know, there there's certainly probably some calls as a profession that, that we can probably do a better job at either not responding to or maybe having a co-responder kind of component. But if you take funding away and calls for service uh, remain persistent or constant, you're going to eventually have to continue to reassign personnel to answer calls for service. Or if you don't do that, then the standard that the community has grown to expect on getting an officer during a, you know, within so many minutes, that's going to change uh, where you're going to have such long response times or you're going to have to continually disband other specialized units that may have had some real value in communities from crime prevention units to youth mentoring programs. As we have these conversations about police reform and more pointedly kind of defunding, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the the finish line. And so I think if you can achieve a a safer community and look for ways to integrate specialized teams to to kind of help on some of these calls that inherently are, are dangerous and risky like mental health calls, I think if you're having a genuine and authentic conversation with elected leaders in the community, then you can work together. But time will tell whether these strategies to uh, divert funding will either hurt or help a community. There just happened to be some markets where the city officials are not supporting police. And, you know, as you say, with the, I asked this uh, a couple interviews ago, the co-responder model on mental health it is a great idea. However, those situations can turn dangerous. Yeah, I think that, you know, as, as we talk about co-responder models, yeah, I think that there could be some serious challenges. You know, when, when we look at how we deal with the public and, and how some of these situations turn violent or turn controversial, you know, I always equate it back to relationships. If I have a good relationship with the community if, and, and that citizen knows me and I know them, then they may see me as a person and not so much as a uniform. And I'm certainly going to see that person as their name and who they are. It's about relationships. The problem is under the heading that we're talking about, reform and defunding, you're not going to have the staff to do the relationship building. The, the very thing that could fix the issues, this relationship building, can't be done in a defunded police department. That's correct. You know, if, if you go to a skeletal crew, you're right. You're going to have less opportunity and time to build relationships because the fewer officers that you have, 
with a steady stream of calls for service that are on hold, all you're going to have time to do is to go from call to call to call. And oh, by the way, when you get to your call, that citizen's probably been waiting for a long time. And so you're already behind the curve on trying to build a proactive uh, rapport or relationship with them. They feel marginalized or minimized. And so that's where we have to be really careful with this defunding conversation or reimagining policing. Because uh, I think it's quite the contrary. I think we should invest more heavily in police departments and make sure that our officers have the time and ability to get to know the people that they police. Matter of fact, I think we need to incentivize officers living in their communities. Man, there's a lot of large cities. Officers can't even afford to live in the city just because of the cost of living. You know, they don't even have any local ties in the community, but a lot of times it's not even their fault. The only downside to that that I have heard is then you're kind of always on. You never get away. You can't go to the grocery store without being a police officer. There is, there is some downside, and, and there are some officers that will say, hey, I don't want to be in a restaurant and then run into someone maybe I've arrested. or, And, and I get all that. But if, if we really believe, though, that, that relationships are the key to really the dilemma that we find ourselves in, I do think we need to have serious conversations about how do we integrate our officers more on a trajectory that allows them to interact more freely with individuals. I asked you earlier and I didn't follow up. Officers who are getting fired based on an incident and the video, how can you fire someone overnight? Yeah, you know, there are times where you see agencies move very rapidly on employment decisions. When you do that, the thing that labor will point to is that the agency or the chief or the sheriff succumbed to political pressures and that they made a decision just to kind of appease uh, the community. Because within, you know, a day or two of an incident, it is, it's really difficult to have all of your facts readily apparent to make a, a difficult decision like that. Just as any citizen is entitled you know, to due process, so are officers. I think people have to remember that use of force and deadly use of force are required at times. Right now we're in a situation where all deadly use of force is wrong. And that is not accurate. Yeah, deadly force unfortunately will occur. It's going to continue to occur because you, you will have times where a suspect is not going to comply and they're gonna to try to either harm you as an officer or an innocent third party. There are laws that govern whether or not force is justified. I hope that we don't get to a point where every time there's a deadly force encounter, the presumption is that the police are wrong. Well, that's where we are right now. Yeah, and that's where, where I was talking about the hijack narrative. That's where agencies have to be in the forefront. They have to be front and center. They have to be explaining the fact set on what happened. Because if not, someone else is going to tell that story and it's nine times out of 10 going to be completely non-factual and incorrect. It's, it's something we're going to have to continue to deal with. This is another reason we just launched a new thing called a body-worn camera video of the week. I'm doing this for two reasons. Number one, every time the public hears body-worn camera fixing to be released, it's almost like you, you sigh in anticipation that you're fixing to see something really bad, really egregious, right? Because that's what we see playing out on national television and, and local television. 
So the first reason I'm trying to dispel that, hey, body-worn camera footage is routine and happens every day. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours are recorded. The second reason I'm doing it, officers use force very rare. Matter of fact, in our jurisdiction, 0.4%, less than 1%, 0.4% last year of every encounter, of the hundreds of thousands of encounters we had, resulted in a force application. And so we started this program. Uh, the first video we released yesterday was a sergeant that saw some uh, kids in an apartment community and made some balloon uh, canine dogs for them. I want to start kind of dispelling the myths that when you see body-worn camera, it's always going to be bad or it's always going to show force. That is a great idea. To me, that what that's doing is you're putting the good stories out there. You're putting some perspective out there because the other downside to all this is we're seeing only negative narratives. There is no balance. There is no perspective. And it, again, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I did want to say also in terms of officer-involved shootings, people also never talk about the impact on the officer. I watched a documentary called Officer Involved made by Patrick Shaver, a former police officer, a film I highly recommend. He interviews officers from around the country who had used deadly force and the incredible emotional toll it often takes on them and their families. No one talks about that. I mean, yes, it's horrible that someone's loved one has died, but the impact on law enforcement is, is intense and dramatic. Yeah, I mean, this is why you see a lot of times officers that are involved in deadly force encounters. Sometimes they retire. Sometimes they have uh, mental health issues. And that's why you need to have a very robust employee wellness program. Because you're exactly right. The incident doesn't stop right when it's over. Matter of fact, it's just beginning. And, and oftentimes, these officers, they have no idea what they're about to undergo. From uh, the scrutiny that's going to occur from the community perspective, having a personnel complaint filed on them to, from the administrative review to ensure that they followed policies and protocols, going before a grand jury and having citizens of, of every walk of life review the justifiable or non-justifiable nature of their behavior and action. And so what happened in a split second for the officer is going to be judged for many months, sometimes years, okay? And so, yeah, you're exactly right. It can take an emotional toll on officers and their families. So we've talked a lot about some very heavy, thought-provoking things. The thing that pricked up my ears was hearing you say that you've wanted to be a, a police officer since you were a kid. So I want to hear more about that. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I, I grew up on chips. It just kind of sold me on the idea I want to be a police officer. And so from when I was little bitty, I had every police car and, and police uniform and police hat that you can imagine. When I was a teenager, I actually became a, an explorer. So the first time I rode with an officer, that's kind of when I got hooked. I was like, I know I'm going to do this job. So I went to the police academy graduated in May 1995. It is definitely a rewarding career. When I came to Arlington, I hired in in 2005. I was a fatality crash investigator. And so, you know, I've worked cases that involve, you know, small kids. And those are the, the, the bad times, right? And the, those are the images that are really hard to, to get out, out of your head. But there's been so many good things too. So 
I have to go back. What was it about the ride along that sealed the deal for you? You know, we went on a ride along and, and it's funny, I'll, I'll never forget that night. And I remember we made a traffic stop or two. It was just like, wow, everything that, you know, how I thought it was going to be growing up and, and, and going out and, and answering some calls for service. And, you know, and this was like 26, 27 years ago, 28 years ago, but I'll never forget those calls. It made some, uh, such an impression on me that I can do this job and it's going to be fun. The people that I met over the years, I mean, these are genuinely good people. These are people that they're never going to be rich doing this type of job, but they dedicated their whole lives to serving others. I've also lost some friends along the way. Matter of fact, my best friend was killed in 2004 in a police pursuit. Another case, I lost a good friend who went to a domestic disturbance and got into a gun battle with the suspect and gave his life. There's been some of those, you know, when I look back on my career that they, they never made it out, but even so, they gave their life in defense and protecting all of us. So it just illustrates the dangers of the profession. Well, it has to be one of the hardest parts of this job, seeing friends and fellow officers lose their lives in the line of duty. Are there incidents that you were involved in that you remember that were difficult or rewarding? Um, I can remember uh, working a, a drowning of a small kid and. And, and you wish that, man, if I'd have got there 30 seconds before, could I have made a difference? Unfortunately, the child, we weren't able to resuscitate. There have been cases that I've been scared. I, I remember answering an alarm call one day. The, the business had an open door. So as police officers, what do we do? We go in and make sure there's no suspect in there. And as I rounded the corner, I remember somebody pointing a gun at me. And it was the owner. It is by the grace of God that I didn't fire on him or he didn't fire on me. And and so there have been times like that. And then one of the most rewarding times in my career, I had done a press conference on the dangers of driving while intoxicated. And I got a letter, uh, or it was actually an email. The guy emailed me and said, hey, Lieutenant Cook, I just wanted to let you know that you saved my life. You may not remember this, but about six or seven years ago, you stopped me on traffic. I had been drinking and driving. You placed me under arrest, and I've been sober ever since. I just wanted to thank you, and you never know the difference that you might make in someone's life. And I, and I always cherish that email. Matter of fact, I have it printed out at home. I've got it's in a box because it's a standard event. I made a lot of arrests for DWIs, right? And I always treated people with dignity and respect, but I've never had somebody come back to say, "Hey, because of you." you changed my life for the better. In an arrest situation, there's been scary moments, there's been sad moments, and there's been rewarding moments like that. So Lieutenant, I have to thank you so much for your time today. Your insights have been really amazing. I think you're doing amazing work. And I'm personally really glad that you're a police officer. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and, and hopefully, uh, some of my storyboard will inspire other uh, officers in, in our community that hears this, that the vast majority of us who wear this uniform each and every day, we love our communities, we want to make a difference, and we need your partnership to be successful. Well, thank you so much. Stay safe.